You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and uh, I'm sure that you do, because you're just a group that has your Bible. If you turn to Romans 16, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23 more formally, and we'll actually look at 17 through 20 in quite a bit of detail. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one under a seat in front of you or somewhere near you. That's going to be on page 1009 if you're using the uh, version Bible app. All the scriptures should be in there. You can follow along right by walking right down through our event. But uh, we're going to look this morning, Romans 16, verses 9 through 23. I'd like to start by the reading of that word. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that we have opened this morning, that we look to now. I ask that you would speak to us from it in terms we can understand, that you would encourage us, that you would move us, that you would work in us. And Lord, I just ask that by the power of your word, we'd be transformed into your image, that we would grow, that we'd be sanctified and blessed by it. So Lord, help me in the preaching of this word. Help us in the hearing of this word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, wow, there's a line in there that I hope you keyed in on. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Assuming that's more than just to the church in Rome, but to the to the church even today. That's awesome. Isn't that not awesome? That's awesome. I mean, it's a good start to the to the working through of God's word. That's pretty awesome. And you'd be really hard-pressed, if you think about this, you'd be so hard-pressed to find anybody but God who would put peace in the same sentence with crushing Satan. (laughs) But our God is the God of peace because he brings peace by destroying the work of the devil and restoring peace between the creator and the created. And that's also awesome, isn't it? That's awesome. I'm guessing you probably didn't get up this morning thinking, yep, soon I'm going to crush Satan's uh, soul under my feet. I'm, I'm gonna, soon God is going to crush Satan under my feet. Anybody woke up this morning that was the first thought you had? It was not the first thought I had. But I think anchoring ourselves in that kind of truth would be a really good way to start our day. Would it not? That would be a good way to start every day. So we're going to look a little bit more at this. Um, but before we like pick a fight with Satan, before you get fired up and you're, you're ready to pick a fight with Satan, thinking that it's all about us, um, we need to realize what's here. Problem number one is that it's not true. It's not about us. It's about God. God defeats Satan. That's, that's what it says, not us. Problem number two is that if we miss the context of what all this is in, we are going to start devising plans within our own power and within our own strength and our own intellect and our own will to defeat Satan. And then we're going to be really confused when uh, Satan and his demons strip us naked 
and beat us up and send us running through the streets ashamed like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19 because we don't get it. But based on what Paul is saying here, if we get this in context, we will see that there is a way in which we can be the instruments in God's hand by which he crushes Satan. In this text, we're going to see that obedience protects us from false teaching. That's very true. But it's when we learn who God is and trust God and anchor ourselves more in him that we become God's means to go on the offensive for the kingdom of God. That's what I think we're going to see here. Now, technically speaking, because of the way we broke this up, the text, um, we're just going through the pericopes of the CSB printing. That's how we decided we walked through it to kind of show you how to move through your Bible. And technically speaking, we're looking at Romans 16, verses 19 through 23. And maybe the Bible you're looking at breaks the text up like that. On the back end of these verses, I want to deal with this on the front end. Pastor Josiah just preached about this um, to the kids. So on the back end of this section, we have verses 21 through 23, and Paul is talking about his friends, the, the eight people who are with him, who are sending their greetings, which is awesome, and there's some really cool stuff in there. Some of these guys were doing other things. They were using their skills. Tertius was the guy who was writing, transcribing the letter. That's pretty cool. Gaius was opening up his household and making his resources available, and then Erastus, that's a really interesting one. Erastus was the city treasurer. So there's a, a guy working for the kingdom, but serving the city as a treasurer in some kind of a governmental type role. That's pretty neat. And we can see that all these guys have a love and a, and a passion for the church in Rome. We see the connectivity between all these individuals all over the place. Two weeks ago, I preached Romans 16, uh, 3 through 16. And in that particular text, I tried to show you the significance of Christian friends and right Christian fellowship and, and all of this wonderful, beautiful stuff that comes of that. So therefore, I'm going to go ahead and just leave verses 21 through 23 to that sermon two weeks ago. And I'm looking around here, I see some, some faces that might be new, and you're like, I wasn't here two weeks ago, so what about that? You can find that sermon on the website or on our YouTube channel, because I went all through that looking at all this fantastic community. I'm just going to leave that to this. On the front end of the section we're looking at, verses 19 through 23, we have a problem. We have a problem. It's not a huge problem, but it is a problem. The publishers of the CSB translation thought that Romans 16, 19 through 23 could be its own little section. They thought this could be entirely on its own. Um, and I don't think that that's how it should go. I don't think the break actually goes there, and I don't want to show you why I don't agree with where the break is. I'm convinced, and I think once you see this, you'll be convinced, that verses 17 through 18 and verses 19 through 20 have to go together. They are one thought unit. I think you'll agree with me when you see it. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually take 17 through 20 this morning. Let's read that together so we can be fresh on that. I talked about 17 and 18 last week, but let's look at it again. Let's read 17 through 20 together. So verse 17. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk 
and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The flow of Paul's argument, it goes like this. You ready? So it goes, it goes first. Watch out for those who deceive you by false teaching. Okay, those guys are smooth talkers, flattering words. Watch out for them. And then you need to know that they don't serve God. They're against God. But you guys in Rome, woo, good job. Look at how obedient you've been. That's wonderful. You haven't been duped yet. These guys haven't come in and suckered you. right? You haven't been tempted and led astray by deceivers and liars. Great job. Great job. Keep up the good work, church in Rome. However, and that's an interesting one. However, but... While obedience is presently keeping you safe from these false teachers and these liars, I want you, Paul says, to go beyond simple obedience. I want you to understand and grow. I want you to understand what wisdom looks like about the things that are good, and I want you to have no experience, no dealings with the things that are evil. Because it's this kind of thinking, Paul is arguing, this kind of growth that God will use to crush Satan under your feet. So in a way, he's saying, you know, Satan and the threat of Satan will be much smaller and less concerning when you grow in the knowledge of who God is, when you love him, when you trust him, rather than simply obeying a God you don't know very well. Satan will be so much less powerful in that way. And then... Paul ends by asking God for the blessing of the grace of our Lord Jesus for them. They would would experience this grace. Are any of you feeling like you've heard something like this in the Bible before? Is anything there kind of just ringing in your ears? Are you picking up? And it's faint, but I'm convinced it's there. Are you picking up the echoes of another passage that Paul is drawing from? Smooth-talking liar, using flattery obedience, good and evil, Satan's involved, and there's this whole like crushing Satan thing, crushing a snake thing. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Because it's starting to sound an awful lot like Genesis 3 to me, isn't it? Sounds a whole lot like that. So let's just compare. Let's just see if these two things seem similar. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 3, Verses 1 through 7. If you're new to your Bible, if you don't know where that is, it is on page 2 in the story. Right? Right there at the beginning. God created the world and then this. Uh, So if you have that pew Bible, page 2. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's just read this and see if we can kind of see maybe that there's a connection. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No! 
You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. God had created the man and the woman. Yay. Genesis 1.28 says that God told them, be, told, the, yeah, told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Rule. In Genesis 2.16, it says, God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let's key into two specific commands here from God. Rule over all the creatures of the earth. Have dominion over the world, over creation. Be the ruler. And don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree in the middle of the garden. Stay away from that one. That was you know, two significant commands that we kind of just read about. But the problem is one of the creatures that God had made starts talking to Adam's wife. And he's a smooth talker. I don't think any of us would be surprised if the way that he was talking to Eve was flattering to Eve. But he was flattering her. After all, he's the most cunning of all the wild animals, it says. And Adam's just standing there, just watching this thing happen. Now, Adam's response might be questionable at this point because we know how the story ends, but at that point, it could go a couple different directions. He's just... He's just standing there. But then the serpent brings the conversation around to that middle of the tree, off-limits, don't-eat tree that God said, don't mess with this one. And at this point, alarm bells should be going off. right? Adam's mind should be going, wait a minute, why is this serpent telling us all about this tree? What is going on? Alarm bells should be ringing. Adam's mind should be like, alert. But nope. The ruler of the garden, okay, you could say at this point, the God-appointed ruler of the world, Adam, just laid down like a doormat and let the serpent take control. Adam just let the serpent take over like a boss. He just handed over his rule and said, what you got for us? Adam didn't rule. He didn't obey God. That's disobedience. Adam could have commanded the serpent... And the serpent would have had to have obeyed. And if the serpent didn't obey, Adam could have crushed the serpent to death and ground him into the dust. Adam had the authority. He had the ability to rule. He didn't do it. He just stood there. He disobeyed God. And then Adam should have grabbed that snake and done some serious business. As soon as the snake said, hey, what about the tree? What about this thing that God told you not to mess with? Adam should have stepped in. <clears throat> he didn't. So then they were tempted. And then they ate from that tree that God said don't eat from. And so once again, we have disobedience. Adam is now disobeyed. He ate from the tree. And God could have crushed Adam right then and there into the dust from where he came. But God didn't do that. God is a gracious God. 
But he's also a just God. He's a just God. They would have to die. That's what God said would happen. And their, be, their bodies began the process of dying on that day. Some of us understand that process. We're a little further along the journey in the process. For them, it began on that day. <clears throat> God also had to curse Adam and Eve and the serpent. He had to cast judgment on them. But there was also a good promise in the curse. Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God put hostility there. Or we could say it another way. God removed the peace that was there. God put hostility between the people and the serpent. And he put hostility between them and God. And he especially put hostility there when he planted the the cherubim with the whirling flaming sword that was between them that said, you cannot get to the tree of life in verse 24. No peace, only hostility. But God promised that he would deal with the serpent. By the means of, the way he would do it would be the seed of the woman. Not just all the seed of the woman, specifically by the he. He will crush your head. He is referring here to Jesus as we learn as we keep reading the Bible. Jesus would deal with this. The implication is that uh, by dealing with Satan, this deceiver, God will bring peace between humanity and God. He will be the, the God of peace, bringing the peace. The promise is that Jesus will strike the serpent's head. Right? Jesus is going to crush and kill the serpent. That's a promise. Commenting on it in 1 John 3, 8, it says that Jesus will destroy the work of the devil. He's going to make all this new. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 offers commentary about this promise. It says, by his own, Jesus, by his own death, Jesus might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus will be the promised snake crusher. All right, now wait a minute. <clears throat> That's all great. That's wonderful. But I thought we just read that Paul said that God was going to crush Satan under our feet soon. Which is it? Which is it? Is the devil crushed under Jesus' foot or is the devil crushed under our feet? And when and and how? How do we get from Genesis 3.15, Jesus the snake crusher, to Romans 6.20? Hmm. Let's turn our attention to that for a minute. How do we get from Genesis 3.15 to Romans 16.20? And where do we go from there? How do we, how do we get this? There are generally three ways we can interpret the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And the best biblical scholars are totally split on this, which doesn't make it easy. Probably because it's a little, fl- it's a little fuzzy. There's a lot of blurry lines here. So therefore, I'm just going to share all three possibilities. You can figure it out where you what you think. So first there's the idea of total fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 in the past, specifically at the cross, that the promise was totally fulfilled at the cross. Support for the understanding might be found in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where it says, Jesus nailed your sins and my sins, that debt to the cross, praise the Lord. Thus disarming, it says, the rulers and authorities, disgracing them publicly when he triumphed over them. But this raises the question, how is the devil still a concern if he has been totally defeated? 
How can Peter say in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert? Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. How is this working? There's another approach to viewing this. The second approach is to see the fulfillment in Genesis 3.15 as an ongoing fulfillment that began with Christ's work on the cross and then is continuing as the gospel advances. So it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Romans 16.20 that we just read would be probably the chief support for that kind of thinking. The idea is that Satan was first crushed under the feet of Jesus at the cross and then is staying crushed and getting more crushed by Jesus working in his sanctified people, who then ultimately, are, then ultimately at the end, Satan will be completely crushed when he's cast into the lake of fire of Roman, in, Roman, in Revelation 20. Okay, it could be that Satan is getting disarmed and defeated in relation to Jesus' people. Okay, Satan has power and dominion over those who still belong to him because he's the father of the children of wrath, but... By the Satan-crushing power of the gospel, the devil is losing and has lost all power and dominion over the people who are set free from death and transferred into life because of what Jesus did for them on the cross when they were adopted into God's family. That's kind of the idea here. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, all who believe that he is who he says he is and profess that he is Lord and lets Jesus call all the shots in their life, to them, Satan no longer has any power over them because they now belong to Jesus as Christians. To them, Satan is basically crushed. Thus, it's an ongoing crushing as the gospel is advancing in the lives of people. Okay, then there's the final way to look at this. We looked at the one where the total fulfillment in the past, an ongoing fulfillment, and now this one, the final way to look at this fulfillment in Genesis 3.15 is to look at it as a one-day future fulfillment. The idea with this approach is to see that what Jesus did on the cross was a partial crushing or a partial fulfillment. So basically, Jesus partially disarmed Satan, ultimately taking away his biggest weapons, his nukes, right? The, the weapon of death. But Satan was not totally crushed, so he's still able to engage in guerrilla warfare, right? However, at the second coming of Christ, Satan will be totally crushed as a total fulfillment and a final and ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, now, the future understanding finds its greatest support in like Revelation 20.10, where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, never to bother uh, creation ever again, where he is tormented night and day and forever. But in the meantime, Satan still has power in this world. These are kind of the three ways we approach this. And I don't think we very often stop and think this through in its entirety. We, we, so which is right? Well, I don't know. I have some leanings. But I don't know, because all of them find some reasonable support in Scripture. It seems like there's all kind of aspects of this stuff floating through all of it. So whether the schoolyard bully has been kicked out of the class, but he's still mocking through the window, or if our hero beat up the bully, and all the kids who saw the bully get beat up are no longer threatened by the bully, and so now the bully has no power over them, or if the teacher is going to meet with the bully's parents and expel the bully from school, it doesn't ultimately really matter. The bully has been defeated. That's the point. That's what we see here. Jesus has crushed and defeated Satan, and he's crushing and defeating Satan, and he will ultimately crush and defeat Satan. Satan is defeated. Jesus is the snake crusher. That's what we need to anchor ourselves to here. 
Paul's point is that we are safe from the smooth-talking liar, Satan, who's doing his work if we obey God. Obey God, you're safe from Satan. That's simple. Obey God, you're safe from Satan. But we need grace and help from our Lord even to obey, because if we try to obey on our own, we fail just like Adam did every single time. We have to have Jesus. We can't do this without Jesus. So Jesus is ultimately even making it possible for us to be obedient to God. So if we rely on Christ, he'll succeed for us, just as he did when he was tempted by the devil. He did this perfectly. And it is by knowing and trusting Jesus that causes us to be wise about what is good. That's what Paul was talking about, right? That's how we learn to be wise about what is good, knowing and trusting Jesus. Being wise means we make the right decisions for the right reasons in the right ways. Okay, that's more than just simple obedience, isn't it? It's sanctification. And that's what God wanted from the church in Rome here. And I know that's what God wants from us. To be wise and sanctified. You think about it like this. It's one thing for a teenage parent, or a teenage child, not a teenage parent, a teenage child... to obey their parents by not giving out their credit card number to an email scammer. If the instruction is, don't give your credit card number to an email scammer, and they obey it, that's great, right? It's even better when they grow in their understanding of why we don't give our credit card number out and what the scammers might be trying to do and why we need to trust our parents in this way and why our parents know best. Because when that teenager starts to understand, when they start to really get it, then the scammers have far less of a chance to change their techniques and change their tactics and come at it from another direction because the teenager now understands, opposed to just simply obeying. And then the teenager who understands can help their friends. They can help his or her friends. And then as the teenager continues to grow and grows up and gets married and has children, guess what the, the now new parent can do? Help their children. That's discipleship. Growing in wisdom. Understanding. And that makes it so that the scammers have an even harder time. And if everybody was doing this, the scammers would have an impossible time. If we go beyond just simply don't give out your credit card number to here's how this all works, trust me and and know that we're in this together and know that I care for you and this is why we do this, it's a whole different animal, isn't it? Because teenagers are always tempted to rebel against their parents, aren't they? But if they understand, that temptation diminishes. As we are sanctified, okay, that is as we are being conformed to to Jesus' image, to his ways, his mind, his heart. We will grow and we will understand. And as we grow, it's going to be more unlikely that Satan is going to have any kind of foothold in our lives. It's going to be far easier to push away from those temptations, identify them as lies. Our life will be less in risk of anything Satan can do to us because we know the one who crushes the snake. And then we can say, as we disciple others, follow me as I follow Christ. And every time that's happening, as we're doing this more and more, God will be crushing Satan under, now, our feet as instruments in his hand for his glory by the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, through us, is now using us to crush the serpent. Okay, but there's a word of caution that's necessary here. This is where... 
This is where things can go really sideways in the American church today. Where a preacher can stand up and say, you have the power to be a snake crusher, now go crush the serpent. That sounds good, but there's a word of caution we need to pay attention to. Jesus' disciples come to Jesus one day and they're celebrating. They're super excited because they've discovered this power. Woohoo! It's in Luke 10, 17. They come to Jesus, they're, they're partying, they're having a good time, and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. That's pretty cool, right? Jesus responded saying, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. That's still pretty good, right? That's some good stuff. Let's do it. Jesus goes on. He said, however, yeah, we saw all that. That's, that's true. That's awesome. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If we're going to celebrate anything, it's rejoice that you are saved. Yeah, you got the power. Yeah, we're doing this work. But rejoice that you are saved. It would be so tempting to make Romans 17 through 20 about our power to defeat Satan and to preach a sermon about how great we are and how powerful we are, what we can do to defeat Satan in our own life and how we can cast him out and how we can tell him to leave and how we can have all authority over Satan. It'd be so easy to be tempted to do that and then completely miss Jesus and the fact that it is Jesus who is doing the work. It is Jesus who has this power. It is Jesus that's doing it through us. See, if we, if we miss it, Satan defeats us. If we're missing Jesus, he won. If we think we are more powerful than him and we're just going to take him out and we forget Jesus, he's the winner and we don't even know it until it's too late. Therefore, first, rejoice that your name is written in heaven and that you are a saved Christian. When you do that, what you're doing is saying Jesus did it. You're thinking of the cross. You're thinking about where Jesus overcame the work of the devil. We take the Lord's Supper to be reminded about what Jesus has done in his work. Then it's not about us. Then it's all about Jesus. He gets all the glory. It's not about us. So we need to rejoice in this, and we need to celebrate this by celebrating and rejoicing in Jesus. And we need to celebrate the obedience and the growth in our brothers and sisters around us recognizing that it's Jesus working in them. People who don't have Jesus working in them don't want to obey Jesus. They want to rebel against Jesus. But when Jesus is working against, or when Jesus is working in your soul, then you want to obey. And when Jesus is working in your soul, then you want to learn his teachings and follow his teachings and cherish him more and more. We need to celebrate that when we see Jesus working in our brothers and sisters. Second, we need to remain obedient to our Lord. Right? That, obviously. And we need to continue and desire to grow in wisdom of what is good and avoid the dealings of anything evil. You can't do this on your own. We can't. But when we learn the ways that the Bible speaks about how Jesus is working in us, when we learn what the Bible, Jesus' word, is saying to us, and we trust and follow him, we are learning actually to grow in the grace and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So press into that. Grow and be sanctified in Jesus. Or I should say it in a more biblically correct way. Let go of the things of the world 
so that Jesus will grow and sanctify you. You want to grow in Christ, let go of the things that are stopping him, the things of the world. Get the roadblocks out of the way and let him do what he will do in your life. Third, we really need to remember Satan's status as the crushed serpent when we're facing the devil's temptations to worry, to do it under our own strength, to separate ourselves from God's people, when we're doubting, when we're struggling, when we're tempted to sin. We feel like it's so overwhelming. Oh, the devil's got his hands on me. No, the devil's got his head under the foot of Jesus Christ. I think when you imagine that, it makes it far easier to go, I don't need to listen to you. And when you put too much focus on the serpent who's under the foot of Jesus, you're not putting enough focus on the one who's crushing the snake. Just look up. Look at the one who is victorious over the serpent. Keep your eyes fixed on him, the snake crusher, Jesus. Look to him. Get the right picture here. See this. Don't give Satan any more credit than he's due. Just look to Jesus. Finally, one more thing, and we'll conclude with this. Don't forget that as Christians, adopted children of God, blood-bought, saved Christians, we are called to, commanded to join Jesus in his mission to fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise. We get to be a part of that by spreading the gospel into the world to transform the lives of the people in our community who are still held captive to Satan. We sung about that as we're joining this battle with the shield and the sword to set the captives free from the captor Satan. We get to join in that. I want to encourage you to think about that, that the gospel could transform our community as the gospel is transforming us. So don't hold back. Don't hold back. Just go for it. Let's join Jesus in the work that he's doing to make and grow disciples of Jesus in our communities and the people that we connect with. And in doing so, we will be used by God to crush Satan under our feet by the power of what Jesus is doing and what we're proclaiming. Praise the Lord. Here's why. Because obedience to God is good and right and we should obey. But the next step, the next thing is to grow in Christ. And that's how God's going to use you, me and us, to destroy the work of the devil in this world. In Christ, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have crushed Satan's head, that you are crushing Satan's head, and that you will ultimately crush Satan's head. I thank you that in the midst of all of these difficulties, your promises are true. We can trust you. We can have great comfort in you. And Lord, I just want to pray for any of those who are wrestling with the temptations of the devil today, that they see that the devil has been defeated and that Jesus is victorious. Father, help us in this. Help us to let go of the things we're holding on to that are keeping us from being sanctified and knowing you better, loving you more, things that are, that are averting our eyes from you, Lord. We want, we just please take all that away, that we would be solely focused on you, and that we would celebrate your victory, the victory of the cross, defeating death, your victory in our lives every day, defeating temptation, sanctifying and forgiving us as we stumble. And your ultimate victory, Lord, when one day we will be with you around this wonderful banquet supper where there will be no servant because he'll be cast out forever.
Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Lord, we just want to worship you in this truth this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.